Let's get some sports law updates from Professor Michael McCann. This is the Legal Impact, the weekly show presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs, learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. All right, welcome back, Mike. We're going to be diving into a couple different articles, but we're going to start off with uh, something that actually got you on the Today Show this morning, which was super interesting. Uh, uh, Gru- uh, Coach uh, Gruden from the Raiders. What's going on with him? Yeah, so John Gruden, who was the coach of the Raiders until last night, has uh, gotten, into, gotten into quite a bit of trouble, and that's because an investigation by the NFL into the Washington football team led to the discovery of emails Gruden had sent while he was an ESPN broadcaster. So he wasn't working for an NFL team or the league, but he sent a bunch of emails to the president of the Washington football team. And in the emails, he made all sorts of comments that were racist, sexist, homophobic. And last Friday, the Wall Street Journal published one email. And then Monday evening, the New York Times published a bunch of others. And in response to the controversy, Gruden stepped down. Now the league hadn't taken any action and nor had the Raiders, which raises the interesting question of, could he get in trouble for things he did before he entered the league? Uh, That that is sort of an open-ended question. Yeah, from a PR perspective, it's horrible, but it's really shocking that he would have quit. He, especially given the contract that he has, a hundred million dollars over ten years, which he's only four years into, correct? That's right. So he is clearly giving up a lot of money. Now we don't know if they worked out some sort of termination agreement or a buyout, which sometimes happens in situations where a coach is going to quit but is owed a lot of money left on the contract. It's possible that happened here, but if it didn't, if he really just walked away, one explanation is that he already has a lot of money. I mean, he's he's 58 years old, he's made a fortune. But the other part is that he might view this as the best way of recovering, at least to some extent from this, that he's, he's owning what he did, he's not fighting it, sort of like pleading guilty. And maybe he thinks that by taking that route, it will help him in the long run. Also, I think he realized he can't coach effectively the team under the current circumstances. He knows what will happen if he had stayed in terms of publicity, in terms of a distraction to the team. Uh, he, he did the right, obviously he did the wrong thing in those emails and thinking those things, but he probably did the right thing in this instance. It, it makes me kind of curious. Obviously, we don't have any evidence of any emails from during his time when he was a coach. Because, I mean, like you said, that's an important aspect to this. Is these were all when he was working at ESPN, what more than a decade ago. So I, I'm wondering if there's just more under the table that maybe we'll hear about someday. And um, this was his way of kind of sneaking out the back door before anything else happens. Possible, and it also invites the question of how did the Wall Street Journal and New York Times get their hands on these emails? They were clearly leaked to them, and we know that they were in possession at some point of the league, uh, also of the Washington football teams. There are all all sorts of possible leaks, and some have speculated that because Gruden really attacked verbally the commissioner of the league, Roger Goodell, and called him some uh, defamatory things, that maybe that played a role, I, who knows. But 
you're right. There are probably other emails. And also I think it's worth asking, did he really stop writing these sorts of emails once he joined the NFL team? I mean, it, it, uh, if he was willing to send them when he worked for ESPN, why would he suddenly stop when he joined the team? So I, I think your instinct is right. There are probably other emails. Whether we ever hear about them, we'll find out. Yeah, was he? what was his role at ESPN? Was he a journalist? Yeah, so he was a broadcaster, journalist, an analyst. He, he was in between essentially coaching positions, and he was a pretty popular announcer. And as far as I know, I'd never heard anything about him in terms of racism or, or any anything like that. He's been criticized as a coach that maybe he's overrated, but that's a totally different line of criticism. Yeah. That is unrelated to this. So I think it's shocking, at least to the football community, because he wasn't known for this. And that, that's a point of contrast, say, to Donald Sterling, the former owner of the Los Angeles Clippers, who was forced out after he made racist comments that were caught on audio in 2014. In that instance, Sterling was known for being a bad guy, to put it charitably. This is very different here. This was pretty stunning. Uh, in the legal world, we always talk about risk. I mean, this has to be just the inherent risk of being in the both the media or the uh, professional sports industry, where there's a lot of big personalities that just have opinions, to put it nicely, over how they want to talk and uh, being boisterous. This must be something that's just um, at the front of the minds of anyone when they're hiring these very big-name people for a lot of money. Yeah, and a background check isn't going to show this stuff, right? right? A background check will see if someone's been arrested or charged with a crime or convicted, lawsuits, something where there's a public record. There's no public record here. Now, maybe he had a disclosure requirement that he had to reveal any of his messages. That's a possibility. We don't know the employment circumstance that he had with the Raiders. But I, I think you're right, AJ, in that there are all sorts of things in people's past particularly with emails or text messages or other electronic messages. And, and that just is a reminder, I think, for everyone, whenever you send an email, uh, it's a permanent record, right? And, and obviously Gruden didn't think about that when he sent those emails, but it's a record and any message you send to a team or really any business could end up being discoverable or, or any, government, any government agency certainly is discoverable because of public record requests. The internet is forever. Definitely applies to email, also. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, what uh, what else am I missing on this? I mean, it's it's just interesting how quickly he 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 jumped ship. I mean, that was probably the biggest thing that stands out to me. It's it's sixty million dollars in theory he's leaving on the table. I mean, even if he strikes some deal, he's going to be out tens of millions, if I had to guess. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. So he he, I, my guess is he made the calculus that he can't effectively coach, that it would be a circus if he continued to work. And also, what what do his players think? Or his right. other coaches think about him after this? Do, can he really lead them after they learned that he said those things? So in effect, there would be sort of a de facto vote of no confidence, I think, if he had remained on the team. Now, he could have stick, I mean, his lawyer might have said, hey, let them fire you, because then you're gonna be owed some amount of money but my guess is that he decided, mean, again, I think he's playing with a different set of cards than most people. I think he probably has a lot of money already, which of course affects his decision-making here. But I really think he probably decided, look, this is awful for me no matter what, but I can mitigate it somewhat 
by taking quick responsibility and hopefully that will lead to some type of rehabilitation of his reputation in the time to come. It's kind of funny. We're, we're talking about he's leaving so much money on the table, but that $40 million he's already got in the bank, as he kind of mentioned, that's a lot of money. I mean, that's more money I'm probably ever going to make in my life. Yeah, most, right? I mean, he's probably has more money than 99.9999% of people more than he w- would need. And I, I think that is, in a way, it's, it creates a different set of rules. He, he can do the more honorable thing uh, probably because, at least in part, he has the economic wherewithal to do it. And with regards to the coaching, it seems like um, this is kind of, to me, it seems like very old school. Like you talk, he probably talked around the bar back in the 80s. Like this is just how everyone spoke back then. But definitely being a coach, this has to be a real problem because he's, he's coaching a bunch of people, what, in their 20s for the most part, probably on these teams. And that just doesn't fly in this partially the generational gap that's probably would be a real issue for him to continue coaching. Yeah, in the society we're in now, these emails or comments like that, we know they're just there's no tolerance for it. And I I think you're right, AJ. These are he's coaching people that are twenty, you know, in their twenties for the most part. So they grew up in an environment very different from the environment he grew up in. And what he thought might have been okay in some sort of bad sense of humor years ago it doesn't fly anymore and he's being held accountable for it and and it's and it really is a message to to others like him that if they want to walk down that road they can't say well he's 58 years old so he grew up in the 70s right so yeah it doesn't fly anymore (laughs) doesn't fly who cares you know you have to you're not in the 70s anymore you're now in 2021 we're soon going to be in 2022 you have to adjust uh, or you're a dinosaur we know what happens to dinosaurs all right, so moving on, there's more developments in the uh, U.S. women's soccer team with regards to uh, the pay dispute that's been going on for, God, a couple of years now, right? Uh, what, what's the latest? Right, so the dispute has been going on a couple of years. And really, it goes back to 2016. That's when the players on the women's team filed a charge with the uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So it's been going on quite a while. And, of course, it centers on their pay and their contention that they've been paid less than the men's team on account of sexism. The most recent development is an amicus brief that was filed by the Independent Women's Law Center. And the brief was was in favor of U.S. soccer, which was interesting because the other briefs have been in favor of the women's team. And the brief essentially argues that the women's team had their own union, and because they their own union negotiated a set of pay rules, that they own them. That this is different from, say, one union that represents both men's and women's players, and the men's players make more and the women's players make less. This brief said the women's team had their own union that negotiated their own deal. So now this group, the Independent Women's Law Center, is conservative and has been criticized by some as, as being very ideological and they have received some criticism on that front. So, you know, you could say, is it the messenger or the message? Uh, they're, they're both sort of at issue here. It's surprising to hear so few people supporting U.S. soccer. I mean, they're kind of not liked, generally speaking, from political <laughs> and business perspective. So I, I guess it shouldn't be that surprised. But it does seem like 
to me as uh, someone who's not invested into one way or another in the case that um, they signed a contract. The, the union is responsible for it. They're not standard employees like the, neither is the men's soccer. They rely on the union to determine how much they're going to be paid. Yeah. So in a way, there's sort of two things going on at the same time, I think, that that collide and lead to problems for U.S. soccer in the sense that there's a wide perception that the women's players should have made more money given that they were so good, right? That they were the best team in the world for, for women's soccer. And they've brought great pride to the United States because of that. And that they're not paid as much as maybe they should. Now, there are some would say that they actually have made more than the men's players, according to some of the analyses. But even if we assume that they've been underpaid, and, and that's, of course, what resonates, I think, with a lot of people, your other point, AJ, is that the, the, the sort of more legal point is that they did sign a contract and their union agreed to a set of terms. Now, the women's team has said that, that maybe they didn't have all the information and things like that. But from what U.S. soccer has argued, they offered a very similar or even identical deal that the men's team got. And the men's team also wasn't paid last year because theirs is based on performance and play during COVID. They, they didn't play at all, so they made no money, whereas the women's team uh, was paid. Part of it is also that there is another factor, FIFA, that bonuses paid to men's and women's players from a global perspective and salaries paid to them have such disparities that the, the women's players can't earn what they should be able to earn. I think, I think most people would agree with that. The harder question is who is to blame? And is U.S. soccer to blame if the, the women's players own union negotiated a contract? So then, of course, the women's team lost at the district court level. The judge ruled that irrespective of the merits of the argument that they're underpaid, the fact that their own union negotiated the deal is just a hurdle that they couldn't get over. We'll see what happens at the Ninth Circuit. Uh, the women's team has a lot of support in terms of other briefs, and it's also de novo review. So the Ninth Circuit will decide uh, the issues from a fresh start uh, without deference to Judge Klosner, who was the district court judge. But it, it is a challenge for the players in that it sort of depends on what you want to dwell on. If you want to dwell on that they've been underpaid, that makes one more sympathetic to the players. If you want to dwell on they have a union, their own union that signed a deal, it, it makes one less sympathetic. And I would imagine the courts would be uh, weary of overturning a contractual uh, deal that was made because they don't want to just set a precedent where there's going to be 15 million cases where there's, especially in the men's versus women's sports concept, which there's plenty of, whether it's the WNBA versus the NBA, for example, um, that's opening a can of worms for them. Yeah. So from a labor law perspective, there's an argument that, and I think this was a key factor at the district court level, that unions negotiate contracts and courts should honor what they negotiate. And that if courts decide to unwind those contracts and effectively change the terms, that they're really rewriting collective bargaining agreements, which makes it hard to bargain in the first place, right? Because then uh, management would say, well, we can't really trust that this deal is gonna remain in place because you might later on, you the union might later on say, 
this is unfair or this has some illegal components to it. And of course, the opposite is true as well. The management that signs a deal could argue later on that the deal has some illegal components. It's possible that could be brought too. So uh, it does put judges in a reticent position where if they do unwind or modify a contract, then it, it could disturb the sanctity of these contracts. Now, the women's team has argued that 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 that's true in general, but here you can't collectively bargain around pay discrimination on the basis of, of sex and gender. That's true, but the counter argument that U.S. soccer has brought is that would be true if there was one union and, and the union decided that the men's players should make more. You had your own union that negotiated your own deal. So it's sort of this back and forth. But to me, it's a it's a really interesting case because I think generally in the media, it's been covered one way. Right. It's been focused yeah. on pay. But I guess as a law professor, I'm more interested from the standpoint of the law that this is a contract and it raises all sorts of questions about what is the appropriate role of courts. And there's a big aspect to how much publicity this case has received where there's no way around it that the, the star athletes in women's soccer have made considerably more money and gotten considerably more contract deals on the side uh, because of the controversy around this. And would, does that have any impact on how the, the case uh, would pro- would progress? Well, it, it could. So, so in terms of publicity and promotion, the women's team, I think, has received more, but they've they've also won, whereas the men's team hasn't, right? So from a merit standpoint, they've yeah. sort of earned that publicity. And also the men's players are earning more because of, of sort of global disparities in pay between men and women soccer players. Like that goes outside the scope of U.S. soccer. It's really not, I mean, well, U.S. soccer would say it has nothing to do with it because it's not, they can't control salaries of individual clubs, especially those outside the U.S. So there's that, that, but there's also, I I think you're alluding to sort of the political aspect of this case, which is generally politicians that have spoken about this have have heavily favored the women's players and have rallied around the women's players saying uh, women should be paid equal to men. Now, U.S. soccer would say, we don't disagree with that. Uh, We, we in fact, U.S. soccer claims they offered the same deal to the women's players and it wasn't accepted. And, And it's not clear that all of the women's players would make more if the men's team deal was the one in place. Some of them have done well, arguably, with the current deal. So it's a really, it's a way more complicated case than sort of the narrative, right? The narrative is that the media, I think many in the media have sort of clamored onto, overlooks a lot of the complexity of it, where it's not a straightforward case at all. All right. Thanks so much for joining me this week, Mike. Uh, you can follow Mike on Twitter at McCann Sports Law, as well as check out all his articles on Sportico. We'll be putting a link in the podcast description with links to the two articles we discussed today. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, AJ. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Be sure to check out law.unh.edu slash podcast to get all the back episodes of the show. And you're now listening to us on WKXL in the mornings, now Thursdays in the 6 a.m. hour.